few Sundays, just a quick overview of what we've been doing. We've been going through the gospel according to John, looking at encounters that individuals had with Jesus. And we've looked at uh, first at the disciples when Jesus first called them to follow him. Then we looked at Nicodemus, and then last week we looked at the Samaritan woman at the well. Today we're going to focus on John chapter 5. But before we jump right into John chapter 5, I do want to just very briefly mention another encounter that someone had with Jesus. And it occurs at the very end of John chapter 4. So Jesus had gone from, if you kind of think back, Jesus had gone from Jerusalem where he was in chapter 3. Oh, yeah, we got a map here. So Jerusalem's at the bottom. And in John chapter 4, he travels north through Samaria. That's where he meets the woman at the well. And he's on his way up to the region of Galilee at Cana, where um, in John chapter 2, it's where Jesus uh, did his first sign, his first miracle of turning the water into wine at the wedding banquet. But in John chapter 4, verse 46, it tells us that at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So let's go to that next map real fast. I wanted to zoom in. So this is the region of Galilee. There's the Sea of Galilee on the the right there. Capernaum is right on the northern shores. But if you notice, Cana is to the west over there. So Jesus is over there. But there's this official in Capernaum. And he hears about Jesus. And his, his son is sick. And so he travels to Jesus to see if Jesus would come and heal his son. And what we learn about this official, or at least that word that's translated as official... It usually referred to someone who is in uh, service to a king. So it's likely that he could have been a, a Gentile centurion in the service of Herod Antipas. And it's interesting as we think about that, and we consider that encounter along with the other's encounters that we have looked at so far. So let's, let's kind of collectively just recap and think. So those first disciples, those first people, who were they? They were, they were fishermen, right? That was their trade. They were sort of kind of the common, average, everyday Joes, you know, the working class guys. Well, and then John chapter 3, right after that, Jesus has an encounter with Nicodemus. Who was he? Well, he was this religious leader, this Pharisee, this member of the Sanhedrin. And then Jesus has an encounter with this kind of outcast Samaritan woman that we focused on last week. And then at the, right after that scene, at the end of chapter 4, there's now this Gentile official, this centurion that has an encounter with Jesus. So you see what John's kind of doing here. He's taking us through these accounts of these people with very different backgrounds. Very different, uh, they're from very different places in society. They live very different lives And yet, they all need Jesus. And that's really a big thing that I want you to see in these first chapters of the gospel according to John. That Jesus is for everyone. Jesus isn't just for a small selection of people. He doesn't distinguish by high society or or being a social outcast. He doesn't distinguish by male or female, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile. And I think John takes us through these encounters in this way for a reason, for a purpose. 
Um, so I wanted to mention that as we pick up today in John chapter 5 with yet another encounter of someone that uh, had an encounter with Jesus. So before we read, let us pray. God of light and life, Lord, we pray, grant us now open minds and open hearts to receive your word. Guide us in truth that we may gain wisdom for our lives here and now. Lord, you have extended to us the privilege of knowing you. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, surround us with your presence. Unite us in Christ and with one another that we would honor and glorify you. Amen. So John chapter 5, verse 1, it says, After this, so after that encounter with the, the centurion, the official, after this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So notice, chapter 3, Jesus was in Jerusalem. He traveled through Samaria to Galilee. And now in chapter 5, he's all the way back down to Jerusalem. All right, so that's, that's kind of the setting. There's a, there's a lot of traveling happen in, happening in just two chapters. Verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So I want to pause here, because if you have a keen eye, you might notice something in your Bible. You won't notice it on the screen because I stopped. But in your Bible, you might notice that there's no verse 4 in chapter 5, or at least kind of. So if you're looking at the Bible, it might go verse 1, 2, 3, 5. But there might be a little kind of footnote marker that will point you to the, the footnotes in your Bible. And it will say probably something like this. Some manuscripts insert wholly or in part these lines. So it picks up at, after verse 3, which says, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And then this is kind of where verse 4, or where they insert verse 4 as a footnote. Waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So it's not, so why is it in a footnote? Why does verse 4 appear in the footnote and not in the text? Well, there's, there's good reason for that. And that's simply because that the earliest manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, of the Gospel of John, don't have that, that line in it. And so it adds it as a footstep, or footnote. Um, that, that verse 4 appears in some of the later manuscripts. And so they you know, feel that there's kind of validity to it. It's kind of important to know, but they don't necessarily put it in, in the, the text of, of John's account specifically. So regardless of exactly how you want to, to treat that footnote, it does seem to be the case that at that time, you know, in this first century world, there was a belief about this pool of water that gave people hope of being healed. And we see this also supported in just a bit in, in verse 7 as Jesus interacts with this man. But, you know, we think about that, that this, this pool of water could heal someone. And it sounds, I mean... You know, to me in our Western minds, probably to you, it sounds a little hocus-pocusy. You know, it's something that uh, we're not maybe that comfortable with thinking about. Um, last week I talked about, you know, we have this idea of the fountain of youth that's been around for, for centuries. Well, this is sort of like the, the pool of, of healing, so to say. But, you know, remember back then, 
There was no 21st century modern medicine. So what was someone to do that was in need of healing, in need of relief? These poor people were desperate for anything that might give them the hope of being cured. And when I say these poor people, I kind of mean that in two ways. One, as in, you know, these poor people that have to bear unfortunate circumstances in their lives and in their bodies. But also they were most likely economically poor because it would be really hard for them to have the ability to work and to gain money. And so these are often the people that Jesus, you know, uh, would, that would call out to Jesus for mercy because they were on the side of the road. They were neglected by society. They were begging for money or any help. You know, what, what I'm trying to get at, this wasn't a rich person's, you know, day at the spa. That's not what kind of pool this was. This pool was surrounded by people who needed help. All right, let's pick up at verse 5 now. It says, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. You know, 38 years, it's a long time. 38 years. I wonder how many hours, how many days, weeks, months, or even years this man had spent by those waters, the waters of the, that pool, just waiting and watching for any little ripple to appear on the surface of the waters, wishing, hoping, praying for a miracle, for healing, for relief. And he also didn't seem to get much compassion from others. Instead of, you know, seeing this man's need, they would put their own selfishness uh, in first because the moment the water was stirred, this man says that others rush in before he can get into the water. He couldn't help himself. Others didn't seem to want to help him. It just seemed like a pretty hopeless situation. And I've always thought that Jesus' question to him was a, a little bit ridiculous. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? I, mean, I read that and I want to say, well, of course he wants to be healed, Jesus. You know, he's been dealing with this for 38 years. He's laying by this pool just wishing, hoping, and praying. Like, what kind of, that's an absurd question. If I was that guy, I probably would have had a snarky response for Jesus. Like, gee, you think? Like, why else would I be here? Luckily, he didn't do that. That's <laughs> but I think Jesus... Jesus' question to him, you know, it's, it seems obvious on the surface. Do you want to be healed? I think it fits with Jesus' emphasis on the spiritual over the material or the physical. And we don't just see the man, you know, the man doesn't just say, well, yes, I want to be healed. If you look at his response, he, he, he actually responds with, with talking about his physical kind of circumstance or situation. He says to Jesus, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. 
He sees his circumstance. He doesn't really answer Jesus' question. And so I think Jesus, when he asks that man this question, I think he's saying it to mean something more. He's saying, do you want to be healed? You know, yes, physically, but also do you want to really be healed spiritually? So more, more on that in just a bit. But let's continue with our text. And I'm going to kind of get through a, a number of verses here. I'm going to pick up at verse 8 and go to verse 18. So Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. At once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This man's encounter with Jesus left him changed. I mean, quite literally, Jesus set him free. This man was no longer captive to his his ailment. He was no longer confined to his mat. He really had a new life from that moment on. So I can only imagine the joy that this man had when when he stood up and he walked out. Or at least the text tells us that he walked out, but I kind of like to think maybe he strutted out or he ran out or he cartwheeled out or he danced out of that place. But as he leaves that place and he's carrying his mat, he has an encounter with other people. These are the ones who confronted him about carrying his mat on the Sabbath. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Like, who gave you that command? And when they asked him this question, the man didn't know. It's almost like he, I just pictured maybe he was just too excited that his life had been changed, that he's healed. And he leaves that place without even thinking to say, who are you again? (laughs) I don't know if that's what it was, but that's how I like to play it out in my mind. But he doesn't even know who healed him. So who's the man? You know, when I was in, I think it was about junior high, I don't know, maybe a little before, uh, I remember that phrase kind of became popular, who's the man? Um, usually we said it if we felt like we did something awesome. Uh, I remember like before basketball practice, you know, before practice actually started and there was just the rack of basketballs waiting there, you know, we'd take them and try to make half court shots and most of the time they were, you know, futile attempts, but every now and again, maybe one person would make a half court shot and you might hear these words, who's the man? You know, it's, it's just a really lame, annoying way <laughs> to boast about oneself is really all that is. But that's not what the people in this passage meant when they asked, who's the man? 
They, they weren't impressed. And Jesus did a little more than make a half-court shot. He healed a man. And so they wanted to know, who's the man? Verse 16 tells us why they didn't approve of Jesus, why they weren't impressed with Jesus. Verse 16 says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But then if you skip down just two verses to verse 18, it tells us even a little more. It tells us why they wanted to kill Jesus, not just persecute him, but to kill him. And verse 18 says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You know, whether it's in the first century or even in our world today, people, usually they haven't had that much of a problem thinking of Jesus as a historical human being who lived on earth. That's not usually the the rub, the problem. You know, in fact, I'd probably say many, if not most people, would acknowledge that he lived. Not only from, yeah, he's talked about in the Bible, but other writings from the ancient world. And they would probably add that, yeah, he was a good teacher. said some good things that maybe we should consider doing or maybe that you know he did good things and some even non-christians would maybe even go as far to say that he was yes a prophet of god that there was god had anointed him you know some special message that he had some special connection with god but that's where most people would stop but the biggest dilemma that people have then and now And it's also the greatest source of rejection that the church has always faced, and even Jesus himself faced, was this claim that Jesus is God, is equal with God, as it says in verse 18. This is the part that really seems to bother and even infuriate some people. It definitely infuriated the religious leaders back, uh, back then because they wanted to kill Jesus for it. And ultimately they did. Well, people still try to kill Jesus today by denying him. And this is where the, the nerd in me wants to kind of jump into this whole topic on the doctrine of Christology and the deity of Christ. But we just don't have time for, for all that this morning But that is the central issue at stake. Is Jesus the Son of God? Is Jesus equal with God? Well, John's gospel account leaves us with with no doubt. He makes it plainly clear, abundantly clear, even from the very first lines of his gospel account where he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And he goes on even in chapter 1, verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John leaves no doubt who Jesus is. And even after John's 
kind of added comment there in verse 18 about them wanting to kill Jesus because he was making himself equal to God. Jesus goes from there and he gives a fairly long discourse about his relationship to the Father. And we don't have time to cover all that this morning. I, I encourage you to read it later on your own. It's a, it's a good read. Just read John chapter 5. But I do want to just note these two verses, verses 39 and 40, where Jesus says to, to these, excuse me, these people, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Read those lines and it it makes me think, just like those people back then, sometimes even we as believers, sometimes we focus too much on the wrong things. Our faith, it's, it's not just about being nice to others. I mean, be nice to others, but it's not just about being nice to others. It's not just about doing good things. It's not even just about learning about God or the Bible or going to church or Sunday school. Rather, our faith in Christ it's about being changed from the inside out. And yes, studying scripture is important. That's a part of that process. And Jesus isn't suggesting not to study scripture. But he's saying that in our study of scripture, it all ought to lead us to him. That's the bigger purpose. It's about having a relationship with Jesus. It's about your life being changed by Jesus more and more as you grow in your faith. You know, it's not to drain life from you. It's like, oh, I've got to do this. It's to give you life. It's to reorient your life, to give you new perspective on, on the world around you. Or we perhaps maybe might be more like the, the invalid man in, our, in the passage where we're focused maybe too much on our physical, just day-to-day problems. You know, and all we're, tra- all we're really focused on is trying to find solutions to those problems so that maybe our lives will just be that little bit better. You know, if I can just get ahead, if I can just get that next thing, if my kid can make the team or the honor roll, you know, if I could have this or do that, well, then that's going to kind of fix things. That's, my life is going to be how I want it to be, and everything's going to be just perfect, right? But when those things don't happen for us, we tend to complain about how the world gets in our way. We get stuck in our circumstance. Do you want to be healed? Now, it seemed like such a ridiculous question that Jesus asked to that man, but let me ask you this question. Are you ready? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? You see, we all have a debilitating problem. We all have a terminal disease that we suffer from. Sometimes we see the symptoms of it, but often, if we're honest, we we don't even see it. It can be a silent killer, and that's the sin within us. Do we realize that we need to be healed. And there's nothing that we can do to remedy that. And it should seem obvious to us, but do we see it? Do we acknowledge that reality? Do we really know that we need to be rescued? 
and that the great physician for that disease is Jesus. As John's gospel has shown us through these encounters that Jesus has had, it doesn't matter whether you are a working class, ordinary Joe, you know, like the first disciples, or a religious elite like Nicodemus, or an outcast like the Samaritan woman, or an officer like the centurion, or even like this poor invalid man. We all, every last one of us and everyone out there, needs Jesus. The people you work with, the people you go to school with, the people that you play games with or play cards with or whatever you do, we all need Jesus. They all need Jesus. No matter how famous or anonymous, no matter one's level of education or career or wealth, place in society, nationality, background, or even past failures, or even how good of a person someone tries to be. We all need Jesus. So do you want to be healed? Turn to Jesus. Do you know someone that needs spiritual healing? Point them to Jesus. I'll end this morning quoting uh, from Jesus in verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. May God's grace fill us with peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray.